Hello and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Today's guest is Rob Davio, who, if you don't know, I mean, if you're into board games at all, you know. Uh, he is one of the most well-known board game designers out there, and that became ex- way more true in the last few years um, with his Legacy series of games, starting with Risk Legacy and then Pandemic Legacy, which was like just a phenomenon. I haven't checked in a little while, but it was the number one game on Board Game Geek for a very long time. The Legacy series, if you're not familiar, take uh, some board game you know, the first one was Risk, and basically turns it into this campaign, And but it's really cool and thematic, like there's these boxes that you're supposed to open after like the third game, and the you know, these little um, new stickers that you add to the rule books, you're literally at modifying the rule book, and you're modifying the board, you're, you know, ripping up cards, you're drawing on the, on things, and changing things permanently, and so it's this kind of uh, single run-through campaign thing that happens, it's really cool. And uh, so we talk a little bit about that. Um, Rob also has a lot of other games. Uh, Seafall. I'm actually, if you look at his board game uh, geek uh, page, it's just, uh, it's pretty intense how much he, how prolific he is. Um, so we talk a little bit about theory. I try to get, you know, him to talk. He's, he, he says up front that, you know, um, he, he doesn't really find theory to be generally that useful. Although, of course, that, you know, that depends on uh, on how you define theory. Anyway, it's a great interview, and that's coming up. I wanted to give people a little bit of an update of what I've been working on. Um, the first thing is that we've had this 18-card uh, strategy jam that should be ending in a few days uh, on the Tuesday, the 22nd. And uh, it's a one-week jam. Uh, I think we have about 25 uh, entrants, something like that, last I checked, um, which is great. And people are making these card games with 18 cards. And it's really fun. Um, I spent a good like three or four solid days just doing nothing but uh, finishing up all the art for uh, for my card game, which is going to be another game in the Gem Wizards universe. Uh, it's called Gem Wizards Dragon Bridge. And actually, right now, you can go and check it out. It's on itch. Um, I will provide a link to that. Um, and yeah, that that's just like a finished game. Now... One small caveat, I have not playtested it even once, so I have absolutely no idea if it works. But, I mean, you know, it, it seems it's a simple game, it's pretty random, and, you know, it should work out okay. Uh, it certainly will require, at the very least, uh, some patching, but for a first version, I think it's pretty cool, so we'll see. I have yet to get any feedback on it, but uh, if you want to give it a twirl, I'd love to hear what you think of it. So that's my main announcement. Also, I made a Mario Maker level. That's right. I got Super Mario Maker 2, and I made a level. Uh, Richard Terrell, over his uh, design-oriented community, has been doing, like, a Mario Maker... Kind of like a... Like a workshop, I guess. uh, Where they all, you know, make levels and and talk about them, critique them, all that kind of stuff. Um, And it's pretty cool. Uh, I, I... sent it to him and he actually like speed ran it and beat it in 22 seconds which was pretty cool uh i have some articles in the works i I have not been doing i've been doing crazy amounts of podcasts um i hope people have been enjoying the recent episodes but i i uh that'll probably curve off i have i have one more at least scheduled another interview and i do have a few people working on segments so there will be more podcasts but you know this last like couple weeks has been pretty intense 
so yeah, I'm gonna get back into the articles. Other than that, my main thing is just getting back to my real Gem Wizards card game and, uh, and uh, you know, other small updates for other projects. And of course, you can hear all about that at patreon.com slash Keith which is where you can support this show if you're a fan of this show. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And without any further ado, my conversation with Rob Davio. It's interesting when I was leaving Hasbro like seven years ago and I had been there for 14 years, I thought oh, I'm going to do some teaching. And this is about the time that I wrote that article for, you know, the game, the Kobold book. And I'm like, I should really ask my brain what I'm doing so I can do it better. And to some extent, I did kind of do that. And I have what I always consider more like tricks in the toolbox rather than theory. But I don't know, there might be just splitting hairs, right? Like I, I will often say in the legacy games I'm doing that people are more interesting than things. If I give you a card and it's a gun... Um, first of all, I probably wouldn't do that. I'm not a big gun fan. But anyway, if I give you a gun, that's cool. You understand what it does. If I give you a man at arms and he's got a name and he's protecting you, card could have the exact same power, but people tend to care more because there's a person on that card rather than just being a thing. A thing you can change your inventory and dispose of it. And all of a sudden, if you have three people who are part of your team, you start to say, well, I don't want to get rid of this person. They're cool. I like them. And it causes people to make um, non-logical uh, moves. It tends to, it gives them emotional. It makes them play emotionally as opposed to just a replay. Or some people, some people are like, whatever. It's just, you know, plus through and you roll a red die or whatever the card says. Um, but a lot of people will start to find themselves falling into the story or falling into a little narrative. And then they want to shape the narrative and they become more interested in what little comic book or movie they're in than moving numbers around. And I always like sort of, I don't want to say tricking people into that, but sort of encouraging them to go to that place because you'll end up with some better memories of the game after than if you're just playing all in your head. And it's says one of the things that I tend to fall into. Yeah, like you said, it's a sort of splitting hairs, whether we call that theory or some kind of, you know, rule of thumb or something like that. And I think we all have those kind of things. And I guess like for the kinds of games that we make, theory, I find, gets more useful the smaller your um, circle is, right? So like if you just make roguelikes or something and that's all you ever make and they're very like traditional roguelikes, you can start developing like really like a more rigorous rules for like what is good and what is you know, tends to cause problems. Uh, whereas the broader that you broaden out and make a wider amount, like a array of types of games, uh, it seems harder and harder to actually prescribe like, oh, here's what you should do instead of this instead of this. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Like if, you, if we ask like, what are the do's and don'ts of legacy games, for example, because I haven't done all of them, but I sort of pioneered the genre or subgenre, whatever you want to call it. And I've done the bulk of them. Um, when I start working with new people on them, I find myself saying all the time, well, I've done this and this didn't work. And I did this and this did work. And on the one hand, I don't want to become prescribed into here is how you make one of these. And then it just becomes a recipe that you're executing. On the other hand, I don't want to keep making new mistakes just for the sake of mistaking things. So I have a lot of theories about legacy games and sort of how those work and how people get involved with them. 
you know, there's one of the interesting things is uh, sometimes in a legacy game, you do things at the end of one game to get ready for the next game. And sometimes you do stuff at the beginning of the next game. In theory, they're in the same place, right? Like you finish game two, stuff happens, you start game three. But there's a real difference as to which one, which place you put in. If it's at the end of game two, it's usually not new rules, but it's usually some sort of narrative hook that acts as a cliffhanger like a TV show. Hmm. Where you're like, and then the door opens and, you know, there that person is alive after all. And you go, wait, what? <laughs> and then you want to start the next game. Whereas at the beginning of a game is when people are already like fresh and thinking and you're like, oh, by the way, here's a few new rules about what we're going to do in this game. And it took a little while to figure out that there's different places to put things because I'm asking people to, to kind of participate in a season of television. Right. And it, it has all sorts of uh, different rules than just because the game itself has a beginning and a middle and the end, but then the campaign has a beginning and a middle and an end. And so you end up with these loops and sub loops of ups and downs and well, we're in the middle of the campaign, but the start of a game. And so how are people feeling emotionally? And I find myself, thinking very theoretically about timelines and and stuff that you wouldn't normally think about when you're designing sort of a, a straightforward self-contained game. Yeah, yeah. I well I want to ask more about that like the idea of you know, I'm I'm interested to know how how sort of like conscious and um planned you know I, I someone told me the other day there's this idea uh that some artists are architects and some are gardeners uh the idea that some people sort of like plan out the whole structure and you know build the foundation and like everything's just planned and and as it goes um and then there's some people who are sort of gardening and like you know going very incrementally and just sort of seeing what feels right and and I think both of these approaches have, you know, real uses. Um, I tend to be very much like an architect uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I'm curious um, if you, if, if you like, so one thing I find myself doing a lot is making these weird charts uh, that are not, not like, you know, uh, the typical like D and D sort of um, like a, like a, uh, like a graph, like a, like an Excel spreadsheet or whatever. But like, I make like these like, Di diagrams of like okay here's what like this represents and if you're playing more of like a rushdown game you might do this and i'll slide this a little over here and sort of like creating these like big maps basically of the relationships between either different rules or different components or, or things like that um does that sound at all familiar to you do you do anything that's remotely like that or what is your process like for for if you were to design a new game you know tomorrow what would the process be like for you um it's not exactly that it, it tends to be very um iterative um where i either take the game further or deeper and um there's certain things that i'm perfectly content leaving very ambiguous or broken at earlier parts of the game design process because i'm like it's just not time for that to be thought of yet hmm. and so if i were starting a game tomorrow i mean one of the things that i do is i i always consider myself a bit of an experienced designer so some people say oh, i focus on the mechanics other people i focus on the narrative i'm like I focus on something like I want everyone to feel like they're on a roller coaster. Hmm. I mean, it would probably have a tighter theme than that. I might start with a little bit of a theme and say, how does that feel like, okay, you know, I'll make it up. You're pirates and you're fighting on the deck of a ship. Hmm. I'm like, okay, that's moving a lot of feet. That's dancing. The ship is swaying. You shouldn't have a lot of time to think things through. It should be very sort of reactionary with a lot of give and take and ah. Uh, 
aha moments, but it shouldn't just be all luck-based. There should be moments of surprise, and it's not gritty. When you think of pirates dueling on a ship like in movies or something, there's a certain elan or, you know, sort of whimsy to the whole thing. So I'm like, well, how do I do that? And then I would look for just some sort of core experience. What do you do on a turn? How do you win? And I'll leave all sorts of other stuff up in the air while I work on that section. But I'll be having other ideas in my head, like, oh, um, going under the ship where it's dark, that, that'd be cool. I, how do eye patches work into this? Like, just hmm. whatever my brain wants to put out there, I don't ignore it. Mm-hmm. Because I've discovered when you're working on a game is you get about a third of the way through, and sometimes you realize you're working on a... There's a better game there if you let go of everything you assumed up to that point. Hmm. Like, I could get to a certain point and say, yeah, you know what's holding me back is this whole pirate thing. So, I have this really cool system, but if I change this theme and do this, this is the game it wants to be. And there's this real tug of war with the game. If you just let it do what it wants, you'll end up with a mess. But if you say, no, 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 I'm designing this game. That fun idea that everyone likes, I'm not doing it because it doesn't fit into my idea of what this is supposed to be. And at the end of the day, you want a, a fun game. So you have to figure out, like, what do you force the game? How do you force the game to your vision? And how do you let your vision go along? with the game and I swear the games that of mine that have been the most popular at the end, I feel like I sort of just like midwifed it. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't feel like I designed it. I felt like everything just was sort of happening and I was there for the ride. Like, yep, yep. This is all going well. Um, mm-hmm. The games that aren't received as well are the ones where I keep like fighting with it. Like, why aren't you working? Be better. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the, it's funny, like, uh, so I come from a music background and and, and songwriters say sort of similar things and, and visual arts, uh, there's similar, you know, there's so, there's a certain life that like a, a sketch has that a painting that has been worked and worked and worked and worked and worked just like really can has a hard time reachieving than that first few lines that you put down. There's something to like the life of uh, of art um, that that like allowing it to sort of channel itself and to drive itself that seems um really the most effective way to like connect with people and i guess the frustrating thing about that and the the reason i've resisted it i mean there's a couple of reasons but one reason is like you know we sort of especially as game designers uh, i don't know if you feel this way at all but like game design is one of those disciplines where it's not like art or programming or other disciplines where people sort of like get that it's a real uh it's a real discipline and that like you can get good at it and that you can um you know do a good job of it Uh, and some people sort of have like um a lot of uh experience doing it and that that matters in some way uh people don't sort of think of game design in my view in that way or at least maybe that's just how i i perceive it and so so that makes me be like well well but no we have to like you know we have to do something to to make you know i need to like establish the validity of my role in this team particularly in video game design where like there's so many people doing so much art and so much programming and and so much other stuff and you're the game designer and it's like uh you know you sort of feel like you need to make your position your what you're doing matters right like and, and you know it's not just any old schmo could just walk in here and do the same thing isn't do you know what i'm saying i know what you're saying i don't i mean I don't face that problem. I mean, in 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 the sense of uh, board games, there's the designers, you, the name that goes on the box only now, and not in all cases, are the artists and illustrators starting to get on the boxes. Right, that's true. So everyone thinks of it as like, 
you know, oh, this is your game. It's like being the author of a book. Now there's lots of people, (coughs) excuse me, there's lots of people who get involved, but that's the name that goes on there. So a lot of it's given too much for the game designer. Mm. I don't, I don't mind if people think that, oh, you just sit home and play games all day. That must be easy. And I'm like, yeah, don't, don't bother trying. Like, I don't need any more competition in here, but um, it is easy to make a bad game. It is phenomenally easy. Um, but it is interesting when I meet people outside who don't play games and they find out and they're like, oh, I have a a fundraiser coming up. Will you design a board game for me? I'm like, yeah, it'll be about this long and this much. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I, and they're like, well, my, my kid one made, made a game for school and it didn't take that long. I'm like, yeah, I mean, your kid's not opening a restaurant or flying a plane either. They, school projects don't always translate. Um, it's interesting. I, I will admit that I have only the fuzziest of knowledge of what a game designer does in a, like a big AAA video game space because I've, I've talked to some people and they all introduced themselves as a game designer on this game and they all did like radically different things. Like someone's like, oh, I made these 30 quests. And someone's mm-hmm. like, I balanced all of the weapon systems. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're in a spreadsheet looking at like damage per second and weight and all of these things. And you're over here doing pure narrative writing and story development, but you're both called game designers. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's the same thing I do. I just wear all those hats, right? I come up with the mechanics of the game and I come up with the words on the cards. It's just when you see it scaled up, um, it's a little fuzzy to me exactly if I applied for one of those jobs, what my job would be. Well, to me, what I'm what I tend to think about is uh, in the video game world, I think it would be like a systems designer, someone who or or perhaps like a lead designer, um, someone who, you know, is 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 building the like core like engine of the game in terms of the rules. Uh, that's how I tend to think about it. Um, and, you know, to me, that's like. Uh, but that that's also my own bias that I, I tend to think of games as purely mechanical or, or not purely, but like largely I tend to think of things in terms of rule sets. I think of, you know, a game as being defined by its rule set. And so I think of a game designer as being the person who came up with the, you know, the the list of rules. And uh, I think that that's that's, you know, it's it's in some ways it's good that um, game designer uh is is kind of a more blurry term than that because you know in terms of what matters to people at the end of the day it, it is a little bit more blurry it's not people don't just play games just for the rules themselves so they play them as you're saying you know like they get attached to this card because there's a person on it and uh um and that sort of thing so but but at the same time you know there is this discipline and this is what this podcast is largely concerned with is like the art of building rule sets right like and that's that is a specific thing like maybe that's not what people all love about games that is what some people love about games um that is i think largely what i'm into about games and um and you know that's a thing that people can get good at and can and that we can build a a sort of like a library of uh you know an archive of of knowledge and 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 theory about how to do that better i guess um and but i I also think that there's some insecurity at least in the video game world about that uh you know because technically it's one of those things that has no um uh you know if you were to make the music for a game and you've never done music before there's a barrier of entry uh, same with programming. Like you, can, if you don't know how to code, like you can't just code a game. Um, whereas if you've never 
designed a game before in your life, um, you technically can just sit down and just start writing down rules. You don't necessarily need to know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like about the barrier? No, I, I, I agree. There's it's like there are things that people recognize are a a craft that has a barrier to entry, like music, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, knitting. You could give me yarn and two knitting needles. And I'd be like, I don't know what to do right now. Sure. Right. And if I played around for a couple hours, I'm like, I made some loops. <laughs> right. But I would very quickly realize I don't know how to do anything. And then there's these interesting soft skills. Writing is one of them. Mm-hmm. I was a copywriter beforehand. Everyone writes. No one, not everyone paints. Not everyone does art. So you're like, well, I can't draw. And then you write something like, I, I write. I'm going to rewrite it. I write words all day long. I write emails. And you're like, mm-hmm. okay, well. You, you think you can do it, but this is a completely set of different set of parameters. Cooking is another one. Mm-hmm. You could drop someone into a professional kitchen and be like, start cooking. You're like, I make dinner for myself. Huh. Um, so there's this real false sense of, you know, I know how to do it. And game design seems easy because playing games reminds you of being a kid. In good games, you internalize the rules so quickly that it doesn't seem like they were there at all. And even I will play a game and I'll look at it and go, wow, this must have taken an afternoon because everything here is clean and simple and perfect and I wouldn't change a thing. And I know it took a year, <laughs> but the end result is so clean that it gives the illusion of being simple. Right. Um, so there's a lot of people that there's these, I don't know, soft skills or hard skills or barrier to entry skills. I don't know if there's a terminology about things that just have this invisible barrier between being bad and being competent at because everyone just, you can't see the barrier. Right. How long does it take you usually to uh, to make a game from start to finish? Well, I have a lot of games going on at the same time. I kind of run two companies and I have different games and different. I, I probably have like 12 projects going on right really? now at, very, at various places. OK, that makes me feel a little like, better so just starting about up. my I have like six or seven going on and I'm like, that's way too many. What am I doing? <laughs> uh, well, 12 is too many. But I mean, yeah. part of it is, OK, this game is done and it's coming out soon, and I should be doing some press for it, right? So it's on my radar, but it's not mm. really game design. But that, so I probably have six or eight where I'm creating things or looking at things. You know, I'm looking at a game right now, and I'm getting art back from the publisher. And you know, part of me is like, yeah, yeah, this art's fine. But realistically, an artist who doesn't have as much touch and feel to the game could completely by accident. Um, ruin an experience by putting art on that doesn't convey the right things, the wrong color, the wrong match, drop a word, not recognize the hierarchy of, of symbolism or something like that. So part of my job is making sure that my, my idea of this rule set and this experience gets translated into a physical form to be played when I'm not there. And so there is a part of game design, which is not saying this is how you do it, but to make sure people downstream who are executing understand this is how you do it and even though they're making it better and they're making it real they're not and they're changing it a little it naturally changes when you put art and pieces in that is changing it for the better or it at least doesn't mess something up so you know i have to go in and look at hundreds of cards and booklets right now and stay very focused and not be like yeah this is fine this is fine because if one card it's a legacy game. If one card in the middle is missing text or tells you to do the wrong thing, the whole thing is broken. Hmm. Um, but the answer to your question, I've often thought about this. If it was just me and I had a prototyping team and play testers around or people just to bounce ideas off of, and I had nothing else to do, 
and someone said, make a game, and I sat down, it would probably be a few months. But I wouldn't necessarily even recommend doing that because at a certain point, you're not stepping away from it enough to get a fresh set of eyes. I mean, it's nice when you get busy, you don't look at a game for a couple weeks and you come back and you go, oh, yeah, I see the problem that I couldn't solve when I was like really focused on it. Um, Realistically now, games take me as little as six months if I have like a team of a couple people helping me or working together and as long as like three years. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that seems like a reasonable amount of time. Uh, That's, that's, um, you know, I, I, that, that's within the range that I would kind of expect. Um, do you, once it starts getting around the two, three years, have you, have you dropped games? I'm sure you have, but like, uh, has there been games that where you were working on them for like, you know, two, three years and you were just like, you know what, it's not working. Uh, plenty, plenty. I would say about a third of the games that I get to the table and reach a point where I say, hey, that's a playable prototype. It had a beginning and a middle and an end. And people are like, I see where this is going. About a third of those never make it to print. Hmm. Either I never sell them or they get abandoned or something happens where it's just like, or I'll look at it and go, you know what? It's a pretty good game. It'll never be a very good game. Right. What what's your process for if you if you were to come up with a game idea tomorrow like a little like little something what is your actual physical process like how do you actually prototype um, you know some people use like tabletop simulator some people use um, like just print stuff out and and just do you you have uh, people that you like a core group that you play test with in real life or what's your kind of like process I I do. I mean, I do miss since leaving Hasbro, one of the hardest things to replicate was the ability like at, you know, one in the afternoon to be, Hey, I got something I need to test it. I need 20 minutes and having knowledgeable people like, yeah. And then you play a couple turns and like, I like this. I don't like that. Have you thought about that? And you're like, Oh, great. And then you just go back and you just get almost any point. You can just get immediate feedback from Mm. other game designers. Now it's, uh, you know, my game night is on Wednesday night, but, you know, some people are traveling this week, so it's going to be a week from Wednesday. So I have to kind of slot that, but it's the end of the day and people are tired, so they're probably not going to finish. Right. So it, it has been, that has been the biggest impediment to regular playtesting. I'm starting to find some ways around it. One of which is just by coincidence, I have two couples that I'm friends with who are moving to my area, which is Western Massachusetts. It's kind of remote area who are big gamers or who I've worked with in the past. And they're like, Oh yeah, we'll play test. Hmm. Uh, So starting next month, that problem goes away a little bit, but um, I, I'm a big talker. That's why I do a lot of co-designs. My brain works when I'm collaborating and pitching and going back and forth with someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it was okay, I need to go into a room and I can't show anyone this game. And I just, I have everything I need other than people. Um, It would take a long time because as soon as I'd get stuck, I'd want to like bounce ideas off someone. Right. Right. Or, or just talk at them. My wife who, and we work together, she's a graphics and production person. Um, I'll say, I I need to talk about this game I'm stuck on. And she says, do you want feedback or is this where you're just going to talk and, you know, to talk and she doesn't mean Mm -hmm. in a mean way. I say, I I don't know yet. And then I'll start Mm -hmm. talking and then I'll go, wait, no. Also, yeah, no, I know what to do. She goes, okay, it was one of those. It was the one where you just had to get it out. <laughs> right. That's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I, the, I, I talk about sometimes like uh, the, the design cave. Like I, you often have to, in a process, 
go into that you know the dark room and just sit there and type and like and just work on stuff but uh i i feel that i do that too much and that i need to actually do more of what you're saying and collaborate with people because i've i found that that's true that when you know whenever i hit walls if i just talk to somebody about it you know sometimes they actually offer really even if they're not designers they offer really um uh good ways to um think about it that it's just it's not going to come to me because I'm 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 too like close to it, um, and sometimes yeah, just like, like voicing things like it's kind of like a uh, there's some expression about like you know stating the problem clearly uh, is like half of the solution or, or something like that, um, and and sometimes that's that's the that's a really helpful process. I think it is if you can articulate your thoughts and how you're stuck. Um then I think you are in a good place to like having that breakthrough. Also for me personally, I did a lot of role-playing games when I was younger. I did a lot of dungeon mastering, game mastering, mm. just presenting a situation to someone makes my brain immediately be like, well, how do we fix it? So that they're still having fun, right? If you're playing D and D you're like, Oh, they rolled two ones in a row. And you're like, and now the Eagles arrive. I mean, <laughs> that's Jarrah tokens trick. Um, but it just, it, in an attempt to make sure that the person listening to me isn't bored and that they're having fun and that I don't look like a fool, my brain does this panicky reflex where it solves the problem to so that I don't look dumb. Right. And it's like, thanks, brain, but you put... So, so sometimes I do that. Sometimes um, I just sit down in spreadsheets. I do a lot of spreadsheets and then data merge into cards using uh, Adobe's InDesign. Hmm. And so there's a nice soothing thing to just be like making cards. And, and that's always a good check. You're like, I have an idea and it's going to involve this card deck and I'm just making it up. But, you know, there's going to have an event deck and it's going to do all these cool things. And I'm going to sit down and make my 30 event cards and I get two and I can't think of a third one. <sighs> and I'm like, well, that's that's a sign. That's a sign that the overall idea either isn't solid or it's not time to do that yet. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, yeah, you mentioned D and D uh, and hat working at Hasbro. How did you? How did you like come into games? Like, what was your? What was the point in your life where you decided I want to be a game designer? Uh, or was that was that ever a thing that you decided? How did that all happen? What start from the beginning? Where did you? Where did you get started with games? Uh, well, I played a lot of games when I was a kid. I mean, I played card games with my grandmother, and I played a lot of board games. But I got the real um, love for games. Uh, from Dungeons and Dragons, I learned it when I went to like sleepaway camp at age 11. And I, that's just sort of, I got the bug and I just saw games in a completely different way. And I was actually pretty much a uh, role-playing gamer through my teens and into my 20s. Um, I didn't play like a lot of the 1980s Milton Bradley Game Master line. I didn't play a lot of Avalon Hill or Hexbase games. I was aware of them. Um, and so... I actually, wrote, I was in advertising. I thought I was going to be a television writer. And then I was in advertising as a writer. And I wrote an article for Dragon Magazine, the Dungeons and Dragons magazine that was published. And I was happier and more satisfied about that than anything I had done in my career up to that point. I was 28. And I thought, well, I'll stay in advertising writing because there's a lot of freelance. But then Fridays will be, um, Fridays will be the time where I do role-playing writing just for fun. Hmm. And, and in the process of doing that, I started looking through the classified ads one day back when we had newspapers because it was raining and it was Sunday and my wife was away. And I saw an ad that Parker Brothers was hiring copywriters. I'm like, well, I'm freelancing. I'll apply. 
long story short, they actually wanted a game design slash writing job. And it turns out that I had my entire life had been leading up to that interview. Hmm. Like a combination Star Wars episode one was coming out. I was a Star Wars person, but they also need someone in Trivial Pursuit NFL. I'm a football fan. They needed someone who could write. I can write. They needed someone who understood games. I understood games. They were doing something with Looney Tunes. I was going to be a television writer. I had... I had DM'd at small local conventions at age 12. I'd show up with my role-playing thing, take tickets and run a role-playing thing at 12 and 13 years old. Yeah. So I kind of fell into it. Um, and um, in the sense that if I hadn't seen that ad, my career wouldn't have been where it is. Today. I think given the explosion of board games in the last decade i would have found my way there if i was doing role-playing games but the route would have been entirely different who's to mm. say where it have ended up did you did you go to school for advertising no i went to school i have a degree in classical civilizations a minor in medieval history and i left and um went to new york and started working in television oh interesting okay was that also um the, uh, the classical civilizations i had not heard of that major before i assume that's like a history uh it's it's western civilization it's basically greece and rome and you know egypt and sort of the cradle of what we think of western civ going from like 2000 bc to about 500 a.d interesting so, does that does that is that ever like helpful or useful in uh the design process uh, well it's, it's it's useful for the type of games i make which are heavily story based right between that and the medieval degree, I mean, I always think that the best stories come from real history. And, it, you know, and I, I ended up studying just different cultures and their myths and their stories and their literature and architecture and songs and all of these various places. And I took courses in Japanese history. And I've always had an interest in history at a very, from a very storytelling point of view. What, what, is, what are humans capable of? What are the common threads between them? And when I'm sitting down to do a game, I have this just back catalog of oh you know it's an interesting story and i might not remember the details which is sometimes good i'm like oh there was a story in armenia and i well you know i'll name something i'm like i'm probably getting it wrong that's cool because i want it to be our story and you know and then like there's something in greece and they used to think this and you know and then you start coming up with a world and doing some world building and it's based on a couple tenets of some things that people believed in and you're just putting these pieces together to try to make your own thing. Now, I mean, that said, I try not to just culturally appropriate other people's stuff. I then go back and double check and say, is this actually a really important like deity or something? I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to step on someone's belief systems um, sure. and stuff like that. But it, it what it, where it's helped me is um, just coming up with interesting themes and stories. But I actually went to college with an idea of being a computer programming major. And I was a math guy all in high school. So the idea huh. of coming up with a rule system and I you know coding, like I always walk that balance between math and writing, and which is why I was born to be a board game designer. Do you, are you doing any, do you do any programming like in your daily life these days? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I, um, I haven't done that. Someone on my team was making fun of me cause they like, here you need to go it's updated in this thing in you know asana i'm like link please yeah and they're like old man needs a link i'm like yep <laughs> right like not that i couldn't figure this out but sure. it's faster for me to ask for a link at this point because i have other things going on well sure yeah um that's interesting do you have any experience have you have you worked on any video games before or did you at hasbro or none no i mean i last decade hasbro um 
we did these things where we had board games that also with DVDs in them. And they sort of like the DVD would do stuff and the board would do stuff. But a DVD player was sort of like a dumb version of PowerPoint, right? right. It just basically pulled up different video files and it had a little bit of like random access stuff. Uh-huh. So it was really interesting to think about how to use technically digital stuff, but in a way that was so limited compared to what even was happening on a Commodore 64 and with restoration games, one of my companies, we did, um, we have a companion app and sometimes it's required for a game like Stop Thief. And sometimes it just adds to the experience like in Fireball Island. Uh, I'm working on a game right now called Return to Dark Tower, which will have fairly intensive app integration. And it's been fun to play around with making sure that, you know, you, you don't just need the app. You can't like play on the subway and, and the app isn't intrusive, but you can't leave the app in the box and just be like, man, just make a deck of cards from one to 10, hmm. right? Like this app. And, and so I don't, I hire programmers and stuff, but it's interesting to think of, oh, this can do all of this that a board game can't. That's really cool. And then you immediately find, oh, but it can't do any of this, which a board game can. Hmm. And so making sure everyone's playing to their strengths is cool. What about uh, uh, digital uh, versions of board games? I, I, I'm not sure if I know of any of your games that have been converted to digital versions. Have they? Um, I don't think so. How's is that, that? Something that? Is that something that interests you at all? Or is that because I'm actually a huge digital board game guy. Like I, I love playing digital board games against bots. I just love how it's so fast. Uh, yeah, you don't get like you. And this is me, the rule set guy, you know, uh, showing my true colors. But like, you know, I, I just love just like grinding out five minute games of Dominion. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, it's it's really and you can get a lot of that combinatorial, you know, exploration going and uh and and it's so practical like you know like you were saying trying to get people together to play board games that's not everyone has that ability to do that and so it's a really nice option sometimes um i think it's great i i tend not to make the type of games that easily port to digital space like legacy Mm. games wouldn't and fireball i wouldn't island wouldn't and mountains of madness another game like wouldn't like a lot of games are are about human interaction or the way trips like a legacy game um, I would be fascinated to see someone take a game I did and let let me see what they're doing for the AI, for the bot. Because, like, I don't know how to play some of my games well, right? It would be fun to see someone who does that say, well, you know, this and this is the best strategy. And, and, and just see someone break down this, this set of rules I, I made up and turn it into a, a strategy of how to, you know, yeah. work do well by that that would be a fascinating thing to see i think i'd be bad at doing it myself um but i would love to see someone do it and ask a lot of questions so i'm kind of surprised to hear you say that the legacy games um wouldn't like work so much in like a single player like digital uh version because to me what i interpreted the legacy games as is taking what pretty much all video games do and applying it to video game uh to board games because you know in a traditional video game there's often this kind of like slow incremental adding of new features over time like oh now you got the hook shot now you got this you know the the sort of zelda kind of thing and this long sort of campaign where over which you're you're playing this game over and over and over and there's this long evolving campaign so to me like actually it seems very natural to um have a single player legacy game like you know it's almost weird to call it a legacy game it's just would be seen as like a video game do you know what i mean uh well the legacy 
did it was inspired a lot from parts of it from digital games like that like all right now we're gonna learn how to duck right and you go around and you all right i'm ducking i get it you know you push this button down um so the incremental rules stuff does come from that but a legacy game is meant to be a visceral experience the whole tactile nature of it is part Mm. of its essence right i mean would you play a digital game that you couldn't you couldn't go back and start a new game there's there's no save file or there's one save file and then when you get to the end you're it just erases the game off your right phone and then you have to go buy it again yeah right but the idea of ripping things up and putting stickers on things and writing things is something that feels very uh, avant-garde in the physical space mm-hmm. as opposed to oh, i have this card i'm going to put an upgrade on it. and it goes bling, and it has a little glow effect and then it has a purple sticker it's like yeah okay where it's really taboo in the physical space and and it gives you a different sense of do i want to do this like we can't take it back what if we pick the wrong thing Mm. it's it's the inability to undo and the physical transformation and and physically opening a box and seeing what's inside doesn't translate well to a digital experience yeah and you're really right and you were talking about how you see yourself as an experiential designer and i think the the legacy games in that regard are such a good example of that because like collectively three or four people are sitting around a table opening up one of those boxes pulling something out or ripping a card in half or something and that is an experience you know that um that that uh yeah you're right can't be replicated sort of in, in a digital space in the same way um you know what what strikes me is that um for i loved i watched a talk that you did um i think a couple of years ago uh with jeff engelstein who was just on the podcast a couple episodes ago but he but uh i think you mentioned that uh yeah you mentioned that you know some like serious board game design enthusiasts sort of complain about the legacy games that you know Uh, you can only play them so many times right and Mm -hmm. i love your point about how well the objective is to get people to play them more times like that you know to get at least 14 times or whatever it is right like because the problem is so many people yeah uh, there's an interesting insight i had i gave a talk i think a different talk later at gdc about this is like why does that bother people i mean i and what it is is there's this sort of there's an understanding of some things belong to the game designer and some things belong to the player, right? Mm-hmm. Like a game designer is never going to come in and be like, no, you, you can't play this on that dining room table. You have to move to the kitchen. Right. It's like, what are you doing? I'm playing it wherever I want. Oh, you can't play with that person. I don't like them. And right. one of the things that is in the purview of a player is I'm going to play this none times to a million times. And that's my decision. Right. And I said, well, Actually, as a game designer, I'm going to tell you in this particular game, you're going to play somewhere between 14 and 18 times. And that's my decision. Hmm. And I think it's not that people want to play more. They just don't like that that decision was taken from them because it's something that's like always been that their decision unconsciously. And so right. it feels like a slight violation. Hmm. Is that something that you would uh, want? Like, do, do you uh, like because I think that those kind of things are, are are both interesting to to violate intentionally and then also at the same time uh you know it's good to kind of like appreciate them uh, you know and, and sort of like respect them on some level so is that something that like going forward you would try because like sometimes when i would play a legacy game i'd be like you know i think there might be ways that you could do this in a less destructive way or something you know sure. uh, it's, but, it's called a, it's called a campaign game mm-hmm. and they've existed forever right. now that said there's a couple things one other than the two pandemic legacy games which are my most popular all the other legacy games 
don't get destroyed when you're done playing them. They stabilize, and then it's just a regular board game, just like mm. any other one. You can take it out. You can play it. You can play it as many times as you want. It is sort of your version of it. It'll mm. play slightly different than others. But because it's no longer changing, people are like, yeah, but it's, it's just it's just like every other game now, therefore it's done. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's actually just like every other game. But because there was something new and different and that went away, right? there's this sense of like, well, now, now you took away something that it used to do, so therefore it's not good anymore, which is <laughs> right. interesting because if it never did it in the first place, it would be perfectly acceptable. Everything is um, marginal. It's all about the margins, right? Like, is, is it getting more valuable or less valuable? Yeah, it's just like I it used to this thing and it doesn't do it, therefore it's broken or it's done. And I'm like, well, then you don't I'll make it so you can't play it again after. They're like, well, no, hold on. I I still wanna I still want to have that decision, but I now choose not to because I played it twelve times and it doesn't do the thing that it used to do. It's a very interesting psychological sort of experience. And then another thing about the destructive nature is um, the whole thing about ripping up cards, I, maybe if I knew how this was going to go, I'm not sure, maybe if I went back 10 years ago, I would not do that. But my first game I did this with was Risk, which is very macho posturing. Hmm. It's very aggressive. I'm taking your territory. I'm taking your armies. I'm, you know, knocking you out of the game. So, like, the idea of ripping up a card fit right in with that risk thing it felt very much like it was on brand there but it's so sensationalistic <laughs> that it sort of took the focus ab away from the other stuff right it became the thing everyone knows it for yeah and so it's interesting did it get in the way of a larger message yeah yeah well it probably did multiple things at the same time like it probably yes it did that but it also was the thing that made people talk about it you know and it made it into this like sensation sort of thing that that exposed people to so many people to the other things that are great about really are great about the game sure um, yeah that's interesting um all right so i have only a couple more questions i just want to um what are you what are you playing these days what do you play for fun like what do you actually gravitate towards um you know i'm trying to get this out of designers um a lot of times designers will give me answers um that are like you know interesting games that they don't really want to play that much uh, but like that are that have like some interesting design things or seemed really different but like you know, for me, like I find myself like I play League of Legends, you know, and mm -hmm. it's it's there. I, there's a lot I appreciate about it, um, but it's also like it's very much just like like a video game, like an online competitive video game. Um, what do you what do you gravitate towards? What, what are the kinds of games you like to play most? Uh, what are you playing these days? Um, well, I I end up not playing as many games for fun that i'd like i've gotten a bit too busy when i said i'm working on like 12 things often yeah. by like five or six at night the last thing i want to do is honestly is is play a game sure um i watch baseball a lot i read i'm actually reading like all of the marvel comics from the 1960s wow like i read x-men one one through 200 i read daredevil like one through like 100 i'm starting on avengers right now um partly because i liked comics and also i'm like why were these so popular as movies how are these characters engaging how is storytelling changed from the early 60s to the 70s to the 80s when do i do first of all all of the stuff in the early 60s is a whole other conversation that stan lee did are mm -hmm. did not age well <laughs> at all they are very boring comics the characters are all in there mm -hmm. that all were done better by someone else in the 70s gotcha and i know it's a bit of sacrilege but it's interesting and so i kind of suffer through the stan lee years go on a run where i love it and then the 80s hit 
and they get bad again. But mm. um, so I'm like doing that. Um, if I'm going to play a game, I'll often watch my 16 year old son play a video game. Mm. I have aged out of anything requiring any reflexes. Mm-hmm. What so? I mean, they, they just they assume that you have a basic button mashing sensibility. Mm-hmm. And when I try to play a game, my son's like, no, no, circle, circle. And I'm like looking at the control. Which one's circle? Oh, yeah. it's just, oh, I'm dead. Right? That's fine. I didn't put the legwork in. If it was really meant a lot to me, I could get that muscle memory and knowledge. Sure. So I'll watch him play. Um, I do a lot of cooking. Um, but if I am going to play a game, I will sometimes play board games. They tend to be story-driven, and I hope with these people moving closer to me that I'll, I'll do more of it. Um, but I play role-playing games because... That lets me, I'm not in the industry at all. I don't know any of the publishers. I tangentially know two or three writers and designers. I I can just play it and not be thinking, how can I use this in my game? Who's the artist here? What card stock is this? Who manufactured this? Is there a play tester list? Hmm. Right? All of the things that I think about in a board game, not all the time and not at a deep level. Sometimes I just forget and play a game but a lot of times i'm like oh yeah i can see why this was recommended to me or who gave me this game do i owe him a thank you note for playing it um and and it doesn't mean i don't enjoy them it just means that it's always a tiny bit of being on at my job Mm -hmm. so i will play role-playing games i don't know once every six weeks Mm -hmm. i'll do a one-off or a video session with friends across um across the internet or something you know digitally and that's that's sort of my chance to just play a game usually just one-offs sounds like i want to run a session in this system i'm like great you know just play like two two two-hour sessions and scratch that itch so so you don't play uh like um you know so i I always feel this pressure to sort of like keep up with like what's going on in board games and like and i do a terrible job of it because I'm, i'm kind of similar to you in that i i don't actually end up spending a lot of time playing games because i'm spending all my time prototyping and all playing my own games and that kind of stuff but i i do feel this pressure that like you know there's this whole project going on of like these board games and they, and they do sort of feel like they're evolving. You know, um, I just started trying to learn Terra Mystica. I just, uh, played Res Arcana, which is the new Tom Lehman game. Um, and you know, and every time I play those, they, they are very inspiring and they, 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 they have new ideas that I find really useful. And so I, I sort of, I, I don't know if you feel this way at all, but I feel like part of my job as a game designer is like, I, I need to like stay aware of like the conversation and also, um, sort of, um, research, I guess, for, for my own purposes. Um, how do you feel about that? Or, or do you feel like uh, you can do enough of that in other mediums, you know, like in comics and other things that you feel enriched enough that you, you know uh, what I'm I, saying? No, I, I wish I, 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 it is not a good thing that I'm not playing more games. It doesn't help me know what's going on in the industry as much. And it doesn't help me see what other people are doing. And then I just stay trapped with my own ideas. Right. But right now, given how busy I've been and sort of a lack of other people to play with, it's where I am right now. But what will happen is I will ask a bunch of friends, what have I missed in the past six months? Mm, and then yeah. I'll go to their house for like a Saturday and play, but I'm hoping to get something a bit more regular. Cause I, I don't think it's good. Mm. I'm just accepting rather than get really upset by it. Cause I can't change it. Easy. I'm just like, that's where I am right now. Yeah. I'm going to try to change it in the future, but I, I could get myself all anxious. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm screwing this up. <laughs> 
Right. No, and that's it's funny. There's just so much media in the world. It's like there, I, I, there's so many things. I don't know. And I, I have this feeling like everyone else is keeping up on all the things, and uh, and I'm falling behind. So yeah, that's that's definitely not a helpful way to think about things. Regarding the comics, I wanted to mention. Um, are I don't know if you know Naomi Clark from the NYU Game Center. Um, I don't think so, but I'm anyway, not sure. she's got some amazing over the last like two or three years. She's been tweeting uh, these like long tweet threads about because she's also been going through like uh, old Marvel comics, like going through the whole like history and talking about all these like, you know, social issues in them. And I, I just thought it was really fascinating. And I thought you might want to check that out. Yeah, I, I was thinking about doing that myself. Hmm. Right. Like looking at uh, Stanley was fixated with the word transistor in the early 60s like everything was transistors that was like iron man was transistors and this was if there was just shorthand for technology and um i I would say that the racial politics are absent by the fact that everyone is white but Mm. the gender politics are a hot mess because the wasp is in the avengers and it's like oh come on right it's it's like cringeworthy um, I'm not familiar with. Uh, can you tell me a little more about that? I'm not. I just don't know this character or uh, what's uh, the wrong. Wasp, with that? The wasp. The wasp. If you've seen Ant Man, the mo- either of the movies, um, it's played by Michelle Pfeiffer, like the earlier inc- incarnation. So Ant Man can shrink and he can actually grow. So he gives his. I think they're married. Yeah, it must be. It was the '60s. Gives his wife the same thing, so she can shrink down, but she doesn't actually do anything. She just sort of flies around and distracts people hmm. while the men do all the lifting. But they I just. See. All of her stuff is she just wants to go shopping and get her hair done and all of these things. And they all talk about like the girl or, and then they're always like, don't let the female get captured. Like, it's just, you look at it and you go, okay, the world's changed a lot in 55 years for, um, so I'm just watching it. And it's interesting because, you know, as a new female character comes in or a new woman, she's treated a little differently. Anyway, I'm just looking at the, at the different ways. And I, I always get excited when I see a new writer is taken over because mm-hmm. you can see this real interesting um, tone shift, right. And how different characters are uh, treated and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, interesting. But the reason I haven't been tweeting it is that's me. That's my personal time. Right. I think I could get into some interesting conversations about it, but I'm like, yeah, then, then I'm working again. Right. right. This is a chance for me to just enjoy it. And if I feel like stopping, I just stop. And no one's like, hey, I thought you were going to finish that essay. So, yeah, anyway, no, it's, that's it's, that's, what I've been doing. I that's that last thing that you said is like uh, there's this constant struggle of like, you know, we have to constantly be like productive economic agents in order to have value as human beings. And like, it's really good to sort of be able to remind yourself like, no, you know, what? it's OK that I'm just a person doing a thing on my own. And, and that's fine. Um, yeah. I don't need to convert my leisure time into like a commodity, you know, that can like make ad revenue for some company. Yeah. And that's it. It's like, I, I don't have to always be a brand, you know, right. talking about stuff like I'm reading this. Yeah. I can have interesting things to say about how comics were handled and, you know, and the, the gender role of Janet Van no, Pym, Janet Pym. And it's like, but sometimes I just want to read a comic and have it yeah. be for me. And so you know, I kind of go back and forth on this. Yeah, that's great. Um, so yeah, uh, I was also, I, I, there was one last thing I want to ask you, which was, um, oh yeah, like, uh, like, uh, give me a prediction on where do you think board games 
will be in like 10 years do you do you do you have like a sense of like where things are generally headed or or is that sort of just a silly question <laughs> well, it's not a silly question i don't necessarily have an answer because i'm just trying to hit my deadlines in the next you know right. gen con gen cons in two weeks and that's my event horizon and or, or, or where would you like to see it go is another I, I would like to see uh, i think there's too many games coming out mm-hmm. right now and that gets said a lot, but I've said it every year for the past 10 years and it keeps doing more. I think there's, it's harder to have a great game, have any legs, mm. right? I've done games that people are like, wow, this is great. You must be retired. I'm like, no, no, maybe 10, I'm about 10 years too late for the game to have that sort of legs. Cause it's just, there's too many other games going on. Yeah. Um, I feel like the whole thing could just grow up a little bit. Um, I think the supply chain needs to be looked at. I mean, with so many people just being like Amazon or, um, you know, well, if you want to buy a a digital game now, you're just like, you decide I'm going to buy it. And then unless it's some tremendously large game that takes an hour to download, you're just playing it. You didn't leave your house. Yeah. Board games, you know, yes, there's a small game store and they're good because they tell you what's good and you can get feedback, but you have to go have one near you and you have to drive there or you're just buying it online and the prices are slashed, which are putting the small game stores out and there's distributors and there's warehouses and there's just a lot of fat in the supply chain mm-hmm. that I think makes it hard for all the people to get the published money doesn't go exactly where it should and the players I think suffer a little as a result because it gets a little hard to know what to buy when and, and how, right. There's Mm. just, I think over the next 10 years, something in there is going to change, but I don't know what. Gotcha. Um, okay. So before we go, uh, is there anything that you're, you're, uh, just releasing now or that you want to plug or that you want to send people? Oh, I, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I, um, I ended up like finishing, but they all sort of got traffic jammed towards the end of end of this year. So I have like seven things coming out um, b- between now and the end of the year. Uh, I'll, I'll just plug one. My um, company or a co-owner of a company called Restoration Games, and we have a game coming out at Gen Con in a couple of weeks called Unmatched, which is a skirmish battling game. And it's anyone from anywhere battling anyone from anywhere. So like our opening box is King Arthur versus... Sinbad versus Medusa versus Alice from Wonderland, but sort of as a steampunk warrior. Mm-hmm. And there's a separate one with Bigfoot versus um, Robin Hood. And we've partnered with another publisher called Mondo, who does this amazing art and has all these licenses that they can talk to. And we have Bruce Lee coming out. So Bruce Lee can fight Bigfoot. Hmm. And we've already announced that um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there'll be a game you know, next year for that. And I'm really proud of it. Like we worked really hard. There was a lot of people who worked hard and the early feedback is good. So I'll throw that out there as the thing I'll, I'll plug. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Rob, for coming on the show. And uh, I'm really looking forward to everything you're doing. Uh, I will put links to all your stuff in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. Well, thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please consider becoming a supporter by going to www.patreon.com slash Keith Burgun. On my Patreon, I provide uh, behind the scenes stuff like early prototypes. Uh, you're the first person to be able to, the first people to be able to play um, and give me feedback on things I'm working on. Um, article ideas. Uh, at certain levels, you get all my games for free. So there's, uh, there's a lot of reasons to become a patron, but the main reason is 
that you support this kind of work that I'm doing, this sort of theory and practice, sort of research and trying to actually develop things and market them. And if you think that's interesting uh, and worth supporting, please become a patron. That's patreon.com slash Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.